Ogambachi Oleotia. Good day. How'd you sleep? Good. Not well. Anybody else? Anybody sleep like a baby? Kind of? A little bit? Yeah? Back in the... All right. I see that hand back there, Linda. Um, today, we've already been privileged to witness a great moment in our church history. Four people, three of them here, committing to the life, the witness, the finances, the mission, which if you're not familiar, to be a transforming community committed to Jesus Christ. People saying that we've see what you're already doing, we've heard the vision that you've cast, we see where you're going, and we want to get on board. Praise God for people joining in and wanting to join in the task. Father, before we dive any further today, I want to give you all the honor and the glory and the praise that no church, that no worship, that nothing else, no name comes out of this message other than you, Lord Jesus. May your Son be exalted in our praises. May your Holy Spirit work through this time. Father, we invite you in here. Have your way. Amen. Today's message hinges on a really key principle, making room. For me, Thomas Hendricks, as my name tag reminds me, um, a southern boy, I've grown up with it. I was raised by a southern grandmother, the kind of matriarch that just doesn't seem to really exist anymore. And I'm very much my grandmother's grandson. See, she was raised in an orphanage with her two younger sisters. That's my grandmother Stella on the far left, her sister Annie Ruth in the far right, and down below is Marie, who could never, ever leave too far from my grandmother's side. And to this day, if my grandmother has moved, my Aunt Marie will move within a couple miles as well in their 80s. They were raised in an orphanage together, the three of them, with her two younger sisters, um, Thompson's Orphanage back in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, Thompson's was not the kind of brown rags and scraps orphanage that most of us will envision when you hear the word orphanage. This is the chapel, St. Mary's Chapel at Thompson's. It's still standing more than 130 years after its founding, right on the same former site of the orphanage. Dozens upon dozens upon dozens of the children, oh, if you'll just go back one, Karen, dozens of the children from the orphanage got baptized and took confirmation there. They had their weddings there, and their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren have as well. I cannot tell you, the old oak trees that used to stand just meters from this building, how many potlucks and how many summer reunions for the alumni that I've attended and those grounds. It was an amazing place. And this next image is some of them around at a holiday party. Now, please don't think as well that these nice dresses were a one-off and that was just the one nice thing they had that year. This was their normal. If these were their nice dresses, they would not be sitting on the floor. They had a care group that looked after them immensely, that made room for them in their homes. One of the best times in the year every child grew to look forward to was Easter. As the next image will show, the kids were a bit spoiled. The ladies got new dresses. The lads got new suits every Easter. You had a fresh set of clothes for going into church to rejoice in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, they were spoiled, but it wasn't a hand-me-out. It was for their care. It was to encourage them. The boys would get up every morning and see to the farm. 
The girls would set the dining room and get about the laundry amongst some of their other duties. They rotated duties amongst the age groups, so there was crossover between the younger and the older ones. It nurtured a sense of family as they all served together at various points in different tasks. Now, not all of the children ultimately appreciated what Thompson's was doing in their life. And of course, not all of them functioned well in structure. Some left on their own before graduating from high school. A few ran away. Some went off to fight in World War I, World War II, or in Korea. Some, though, grew up to very, very successful lives as real estate legends. Some had exemplary public service careers. Still, many more had fantastic families that they grew up um, and raised around them. One of the guys, one of my favorite stories to think about, is one of the guys who became a legendary pilot in the Air Force as one of the pre-NASA test pilots. And he appreciated to his dying day in the story he transcribed to us when we wrote down the stories of Thompson's Orphanage, the impact that his upbringing and the care and hospitality at Thompson's had on his life. Now, I'm sharing all of this with you as a point of reference because my grandmother's upbringing hard out impacted my upbringing. And the way we're reared as children has such an influence on the path that we do choose to take. My hope is that by inviting you into the narrative of my life, by sharing part of this testimony of mine with you, that you'll feel invited to join in, journey on with us, onward with us, doing our part to support this mission for Talpo Baptist Church, our part as a community seeking to work out the gospel of Jesus here in this location. See, I was brought up as a church boy. At age six, I got my first fresh suit officially when I joined the acolytes, the, the altar kids at church. So I would serve, not this exact altar, but one similar, lighting the candles before service, carrying the gospel book out during the service for the gospels to be read from. We're part of the Anglican community, so we were alongside other Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and Lutherans and lots of others around the world. My grandmother would pick my brother and I up on a Friday or Saturday. She would keep us for the weekend, nearly every weekend of my childhood, until about age 12 or 13. We'd read a chapter of the Bible every night before going to bed with grandmother, and after church on Sunday, she'd make a masterpiece of a meal, all in it in support of raising us as church kids. It was my mission in life that if I was coming down the aisle carrying that cross in the processional, I was rigid. I was carrying that thing straight up and down. It was exactly facing parallel to the wall. That was part of my life growing up. We got to do this for years as kids. When I was a little older, I approached with military discipline my task of holding the chalice during communion so people could dip their wafer or drink from the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation, which was the really cheap $13 jug of red wine from the liquor store. Doing church was just what we did, my grandmother, my younger brother, and I. And I had a life besides that. I was a Boy Scout. I took piano lessons for nine years. Don't ask me to play today. I had a homework and study regime that my father put my brother and I on that pretty much equated to another third of my waking hours. And I managed to get outside to launch walnuts in their husk across the opposite row of houses with an inner tube and a set of columns on the neighbor's front porch. And yes, we got in a lot of trouble. But you see, our home life was broken. 
My parents were and still are together, you see. However, they didn't come to church with us. They didn't have a personal faith in Jesus Christ that was followed up on. And so our grandmother ensured that we got to the house of the Lord every weekend. She made sure we were at Sunday school before church. She made sure that when there was a potluck Sunday, we helped set it up and we helped clean it up. See, some of you guys didn't know that I've been doing community meals since 1994, actually. Now, that photo, if it can come back up, please, is my grandparents. That's my granddad, Eli Clement Griggs II, holding my dad, Eli Clement Griggs III. Don't worry, they stopped there, thankfully. It's my grandmother, Stella, and my aunt, Rose. My dad's dad, Ned, perished in a tragic accident at work one day. Someone that had been let go of from their warehouse came in, jumped on a forklift while he was drunk, and caused an accident that took my granddad's life. My grandmother blamed herself because instead of agreeing to him quitting that job and finding another one, as he had done a couple of times prior, she told him, you get back down to that warehouse, you get stuck in, keep working that job until you get the retirement age. She had said that that very week and didn't let him quit the job two days before the accident. That, on top of other family dynamics, when my dad was 16 when that happened, his personality seemingly flipped. Not long after that, he dropped out of high school and joined the Army where he was sent into Pacific waters as a field medic based at a radar installation island monitoring for the communist invasion that was sure to come. Now, my mom's family is a different story. My mom is the youngest of three, with her two brothers something like 10 and 12 years older than she is. One of her earliest memories she'll share with us is that she remembers her oldest brother going off to Vietnam to join the Air Force. And somewhere along the way, her mom's mental illness started to win. So she grabbed my mom one day in the middle, and one night in the middle of the night, and she split from my Texas pawpaw. Anytime that my granddad managed to find out where they might be living, or send a birthday card or a letter, she'd uproot them and move to a different place until they eventually stayed in one location long enough for my mom to get enrolled at the private girls' Catholic school as the only non-Catholic in the place. My mom's mom made the decision some years later, before I was born, to take her own life. So I grew up actually only knowing biologically my grandmother, Stella, and her second husband, my granddad, Jack. This torn-apart background in my family's life was not the breeding grounds for super awesome things in some respects. Eventually, the pressures of being my mom's consoling shoulder, the workhorse nature of duties my dad expected, and other bits and pieces got to be too much, and struggling with depression, I made two attempts to take my own life. As medicine started being prescribed, I was no longer welcome in my family home. My dad, you see, wanted his firearms more than a minor in the house who's on mind-altering medications. So I was sent to live with my grandmother a few miles away, and I never returned. Thus, I joined the list of dozens of people that my grandmother has taken in and made room for and sheltered throughout her life that were not her husband or children. This sense of hospitality and family that she grew to love and dearly treasure at the orphanage followed her right out the door of high school, 
She even brought in her two younger sisters while they were still in school, being supported by the orphanage. She brought them into the apartment she was renting while she was at Polytech for business. And it's continued decade after decade. To this day, there are only about three years we can identify where someone other than her husband or children have not lived with her. In about 65 years, there's only three years where we can identify it was just her and her husband or her and her children. In some way, making space at the table comes naturally for me. Jesus' challenge in Luke chapter 14, verses 13 and 14 is something my grandmother raised me in. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, those with V8s, those with big old Cadillacs and 808 subs in the back of their trunks, those wearing their gang colors, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. It becomes a challenge for me to figure out how to make it relatable, this concept of making space at the table. Don't have it all figured out, but I've spent quite a bit of time in it, and I've got some ideas that I want to share with you today. I reckon, personally, we need to start with prayer. Anybody agree we should start with some prayer? few hands? All right, we'll see more hands later, hopefully. There's some really awesome things in the Bible about prayer, like Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 28. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. When we don't know where to start, we should probably start with prayer because the Spirit is going to intercede for us, and thank God for that. When I'm struggling with letting someone into my life or wanting to make time for someone to be in my life in the first place, I know i got to go to the God, the Father, the Holy Spirit in prayer. When I don't know how to approach a task, a difficult conversation, I jump into one of my sanctuary spaces, like my hammock down by the gelato cart on Lakefront, or I park up at one of the boat ramps that I'm really keen on because of the view from it. I put on some worship, and I listen amongst the prayers, and I worship God, expecting him to lead me. Some of us are more practical, and we just need to get our hands and feet busy with the work around us. There's mainly music, there's the well, there's Monday community meals, there's the cap release groups, there's different volunteer rosters, there's youth group leaders with hopefully some intermeds coming online at some point this year, and I think we ran out of room at the table, so I think we need a bigger table. Karen, do you have a bigger... No, not that kind of table. No, we're not ready for communion yet. Okay, that one's got a little more space. We can, we can keep going from there. I hope that you're taking my point. The table doesn't end. There's always more space. If you think the table ends, if you think that there is a limit to the resources and to the space available, I would challenge you to get more kingdom-minded. I would challenge you to go visit ministries 
like one that I was blessed to be with, with Watoto Church in Uganda, to see what the Lord has done through willing individuals who recognize power in a simple statement. Provision follows vision. Watoto started off as Kampala Pentecostal Church and flourished for a while. They thought they were doing really great with about 70 people and then a couple hundred. The more they, they did in the community, the bigger the Sunday service got and the bigger their midweek prayers got. They'd get wind of another need in the community or find a better way to serve those that were already around, struggling with HIV and with AIDS, poverty in general, political turmoil as Uganda settled from one, then another leader, and they'd do something about it. And then the church grew again. They recognized a call on the congregation as they plateaued around 5,000 members for a while, keeping in mind Kampala is a bustling metro with hundreds of thousands of residents. And they hit this plateau and they realized that the Lord was calling them to be more intentional. And the avenue for the intentionality was small groups. After all, if Jesus' home group was 12 people and we're to be imitators of Christ, then our small groups probably should cap out around 10 or 12 maybe and then split or multiply depending on the flavor of Christianese that you speak. Total side note, when I was typing up my notes, Google did not try and autocorrect Christianese. Think about that later as you go to lunch. And then each of these splitting small groups would keep rebuilding and then split again and keep building and split again. They didn't stay the same for 27 years. Now, it takes a whole lot of prayer and faith to intentionally uproot the basis for how you do church and switch to a cell-based program. And I am not saying that this is what Talpo Baptist needs to do. What I'm trying to convey to you is that the intentionality behind it, the decision-making process behind it, the buy-in of members made it work with a lot of blessing from the Lord. They took the message from the pulpit and said, yeah, I want to be a part of it. And after losing nearly a thousand of those people coming to church on Sundays and losing their offerings and their tithes and their time and their talents, the Lord ended up multiplying the good works that he was doing through them anyways. And they built up and they built up and they built up to the point now where they have more than a dozen campuses with more than 26,000 people a weekend on average in attendance, worshiping weekly, with more than 30-something total services throughout the locations. And they're all preaching the same thing, salvation in Christ Jesus. That's biblical discipleship in our modern times. That's the process of multiplication, disciples making disciples, being lived out. Did Watoto run out of room at the table? No, they literally had their fabrication unit from childcare build more tables and build bigger tables. Did they stop when they ran out of space? No, they invested and bought more property. Did they stop accepting new ideas from the membership on how to serve the community? No, they helped gather people around who knew various parts of the puzzle and supported them going forward and serving. Now, getting back to Jesus, he continues in Luke chapter 14 to talk about a great banquet. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replies, 
a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. The owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, those who haven't put on deodorant in four years, those who shower at Otumuhiki hot pools down at Spa Park. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, there is a lot to unpack. And another Sunday, perhaps, we'll dive into the fact that these folks had prior notice and at some point intended to come, yet still made other plans and chose financial work and personal pursuits over this great banquet that had been specifically arranged with them in mind. That's for another day. What do we have here? The master sends his servants out to find the poor, the cripples, the blind, the lame. They get to come to a meal they could never afford. They weren't originally invited to it. However, there's room for them. The master ensures they are not overlooked. There's room for more at the table, and the master wants every space to be filled up so that nothing goes to waste. In other words, there's blessings and abundance that the Lord wants to share. And his heart is for his people that they all get to participate and receive from him. How utterly awesome, in the most reverent way I can use the word, that God wants us to come together as community and receive his blessings while we're in fellowship with each other. He doesn't just have a never-ending calendar book of one-on-one dinners that we would probably suppose would be way more personal and attention-giving to the individual. He throws a great banquet and invites us all to come and receive of it. Now, we have the opportunity to share in the Lord's Supper in a moment, and we're going to do it slightly different, so we're going to give you a little prompting before we go into it. But as you're served today, I hope that you can reflect on the month past and the month to come on what the Lord has placed in your sight, on your street, in your neighborhood, what the need is, what is your heart motivated to do, what stirs your passions to the point that that amazing meal you just sat at down at the lakefront starts to grumble in your tummy and just wants to come out of you because of the hurt or injustice you've witnessed. Because we're invited to the meal and then we're sent out through the Great Commission to do something about it.